and that there's no way these people didn't know about it, then it would fall into what's called as a latent defect. And buyers cannot be held accountable for a latent defect with a property, but sellers can. You're listening to The Right Club Podcast, where the focus is all about helping you grow your real estate investment portfolio and live the life you want to live. Come grow with us and join our community at therightclub.com. And now your hosts, Sarah Larby and Alfonso Salemi. Hello, Right Club Nation. It is Sarah Larby here. I'm with my co-host, Laurel Simmons, and we've got a really fun episode. But before we talk about that, Laurel, what's new with you? Oh, well, working on, on the Right Club, um, I'm really enjoying it. Um, and if you're on our website, therightclub.com, you will be noticing at this point that we have something new, which is our online community, right, Sarah? That's going to be and is the most awesome online community that I've ever been a part of because it is all Canadian investors learning from one another, getting to connect with one another. We're going to have forums. We're going to have educational materials. We're going to have videos from prior events. We're going to have access to team, like power team members. It's just going to be amazing. Yeah, a lot of a lot of information, a lot of chance to share, uh, find uh, find other people who are interested in real estate and like to to learn about real estate investing. So all kinds of things for you to explore and book around and and participate in. Absolutely. So just go to therightclub.com and you're going to be able to access all of that stuff. Depending on when you are listening to this, it might already be up. And uh, most likely every single month we'll have some new things. So keep checking, keep coming in, keep engaging and uh, definitely keep growing with us. So super excited for that. And, uh, and guys, if you, uh, if you do like these podcasts, please, uh, if you don't mind, leave a rating and review. We greatly appreciate it. So with that said, Laurel, Ryan Carson is our guest for today and uh, we just interviewed him. So we, we record these intros afterwards and I will say Ryan Carson is just so amazing. He is a real estate lawyer. A lot of investors work with Ryan as their lawyer for their power team when they're buying properties. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's worth saying that a lot of people think that when they buy real estate, that they should just go to a lawyer who specializes in real estate. But if you're an investor, you need to go to a lawyer who specializes in real estate investing because buying a property for yourself to live in is different than buying a property that you, you are investing in. There are more details to look at and you really need a lawyer who understands the process. Absolutely. And he was talking about the three tier structure as well. Like that's super important that your lawyer is up to speed and that's just more of an investing structure. And then the other piece, and we didn't talk about it in detail, but joint ventures, how do you set up a joint venture agreement? I mean, that's something that your lawyer that's going to be an experienced real estate investing lawyer is going to be able to help you maneuver through. And then just there's so many differences. Like I'm glad that you brought it up because a real estate lawyer or a real estate investing lawyer, definitely for me as an investor, I need a real estate lawyer that focuses or knows about real estate investing because there are going to be some differences. Yeah. And, and they're used to working with the accountants and the lawyers and the mortgage agents and, and everyone that they need to, to pull that deal together for the investor. So uh, I can't emphasize how important that is because we've actually had deals go down because the lawyer who was involved was not 
uh, knowledgeable in the area of real estate investing. So um, it can, it, it's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. And probably too, when you're like borrowing funds from like registered funds and stuff like that with what you guys are doing. Yeah. And there's all kinds of things that can trip you up. And um, so it's, it's just you know, important to have the right people on your team, right? That's what we say all the time. Absolutely. So what do you say, Laurel? Let's, uh, let's get on with our interview. Let's go. All right. Welcome Ryan to the show. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited. We are really excited about asking you tons of legal questions today. And uh, you are the first lawyer that we have on our podcast. And you are the lawyer that sponsors the Right Club in person there every single month. And one that the majority of investors that I know work with. And so thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. No, it's a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. And we're really happy to be involved with the Right Club. Thank you. Awesome. So how did you go and became a lawyer in the first place? Like what made you want to get into this field and then specifically real estate? Well, if I'm honest, I wanted to be a sports agent. So <laughs> I have a love of hockey and baseball. And so not being a, a professional athlete, usually people become a lawyer, sports agent, either as a former athlete or going to law school. So I went the route of going to law school and quickly realized to be a hockey agent, it's pretty hard in Canada to do that. And I had a couple clients that were hockey players, but they didn't quite make it to the NHL. So I had to pay the bills somehow. So I shifted my focus to other areas of law that I found interesting. And so corporate wills, estates and real estate became part of my practice. Like in terms of your clients and in real estate, what's a typical a real estate investing client, what would they ask you for? Or, you know, they come into your office and I imagine a lot of them are, are first timers. So, so what do they ask about? Well, a lot of times, I mean, depending on what uh, different clubs and uh, what kind of reading and background they've done, quite a few ask about sort of the three tier structure, you know, what kind of corporate structure should they should they implement, should they have created to allow them to most effectively own and, and operate and grow their uh, real estate investments? So we usually get that question a lot. Another question that doesn't come up that much, but really should come up more with people who are involved in properties that are outside just a single family investment. So duplexes up to multi-commercial, you know, or what are some of the other searches and due diligence items I should be looking into? So zoning, work orders, fire retrofit certificates, you know, have tenants been given proper notice? Like these sorts of things don't typically cross their mind if they're uh, relatively new or brand new in it. So we try to make sure if they're not asking those questions that we ask them for them get them thinking about that kind of stuff. Those are properties that they're going to be looking at doing. But the most common one that everybody always asks is what kind of corporate structure should I get into? And that's that three-tier structure. So let's talk about that because there's, there's definitely some people listening saying, what does this three-tier structure entail? What does that even mean? So can you dive a little bit into that? Yeah. So normally we, we typically work in conjunction with the accountants. So first and foremost, I mean, three tier is just what people seem to talk about a lot in the industry. Basically the idea is you'd have one company that would own and be the uh, mortgage holder for the property. So one company would be created to own the properties, take out the mortgages. One company would be created as sort of a parent company 
to that particular company we just talked about. And that's where you do more creative tax planning with your accountant. There might be additional uh, types of shares. There could be a family trust, all kind of at that top parent level. And then the third company, which may not be the one that's needed right off the bat. It depends what kind of JV or, or real estate investment opportunity you're talking about. So, but some people do a property management company, and that would be the company that would deal with all like the tenant issues, the rents, collection, services to maintain the properties, uh, lawn, snow removal, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? So those are basically kind of like a typical three-tier structure. One's one parent company is there for tax purposes and tax planning to help people save as much money as possible, which at the end of the day, lots of people are doing this to generate more income, obviously, and revenue. So to save some money is important. The other one is really to help insulate your asset, being the property, from any sort of debts or liability lawsuits. The only debt that would be attributable to that asset would be the mortgage to that property. And then your property management issues, tenant issues, everything like that, you try to carve off and keep separate in a management company. So it's a bit of, you know, creditor protection, asset protection, creating that three-tier structure. It's a bit of tax planning and, and that's the premise kind of behind the three-tier corporate structure. Absolutely. Now, when do you think it's wise for somebody to set up some type of structure like this? Well, that's really a loaded question. There's a lot of factors that go into play with it. Again, we work a lot with accountants to help determine when it's the most appropriate time to do that. I think it's important that if people are generating gross revenues or net revenues over, typically people will say like a hundred grand. You know, if you go over sort of a hundred grand threshold, it's a good time to be incorporated because you're you're creating a, a enough capital that there could be some tax planning and tax savings with the three tier structure. But I think it's also even if you were below that number, if you if you're not using all of the funds that are coming out of the corps, if you're keeping money in a corp, there's different tax planning that you can do with a corporation on on retained net earnings that you can't do in a uh, in a non corporate structure. So even if you're not going to be anywhere close to $100,000 as a magic number. Um, if you are retaining quite a few, a few dollars and cents in the corpse, then it, it, then it can make sense to be incorporated. And then some people just like the privacy aspect of corporations. There's, a, there's, I mean, corporations are still public. You could do a public search and find out who's the, you know, incorporator and director of a company. But the good news is it takes a few more steps to do that. So sometimes people don't like their name showing up on, you know, deeds and so forth when tenants are involved and, and all that kind of stuff. So they try to insulate their privacy a little bit that way as well. So that that's important really at any time. So Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important, like you said, to work with not only yourself, but also the accountant and in my opinion, and I'm sure you share the same as well, your mortgage broker, because each one of them will be able to give you a different point of view, but, but work with each other as a team to make sure that that person gets set up with the best possible structure. Cause it's yeah. very personal. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point about the mortgage rep too. I mean, lots of people will jump the gun sometimes and not check that their financing can be all approved that's really important. You want to make sure not only is it good with the lawyer and the accountant, but maybe more importantly with your financing, because if you can't get a corporate uh, mortgage, then that's not going to work period. 
So you want to make sure you've got a mortgage broker who can put that kind of deal together for you. Absolutely. So I want to talk about because you work with a lot of a lot of investors, and I know recently you're you're currently working with one of my students. What about buying properties from a wholesaler and what are some of the differences with that when it comes to what you're doing or maybe there isn't any versus having a, something on MLS and having bought through the MLS system versus private sale or a wholesaler? Well, I mean, for us, like the, the wholesaler assignment deals really on our end are, are processed very similar to a purchase because you're really purchasing from the assignor as opposed to the straight holder of the property, the vendor. So we treat it a lot like a purchase. So we would run a lot of the same things on our end as if it's just a straight purchase. I mean, one of the things I think I would always be cautious of or, or leery for, for the guy who's buying it, so the assignee on the deal, uh, we typically want to make sure that they haven't like overpaid you know, that, that inflated uh, price, that assignor to assignee price, you know, is there, is there something that you can substantiate that, that fee for? Because then the problem is if you can't, you can't get a proper appraisal, your financing now for the assignee could be in jeopardy, right? So, I mean, other than all the usual steps that we would go through on a purchase, that's the one that kind of sticks out at me as being a little bit different. How did we come to this assignee fee? And is it going to cause any problem for you from an appraisal financing perspective? Great points. So Ryan, I have a, I just, it just crossed my mind and I thought that we really need to ask you this question. I'm sure that you have um, really interesting stories <laughs> to tell about some, some, maybe even horror stories. Like, like what's, what's one of the worst or the funniest or the most absurd um, situations you found yourself in with a client? Like, I know you can't, you can't give us names and details, but you can sort of give us a general story. Yeah. Generally speaking, I mean, we've had, we've had a couple of doozies. I mean, we had one where a client of ours was buying and, and a really actually affluent area of uh, town. And, um, purchase price well over a million dollars but was still a steal for this property in this neighborhood and a long story really short it was when the market was a bit more aggressive so you didn't really have time to do you know inspections and conditions and all that kind of stuff you had to come in with firm deals to get a deal and long story really short they didn't do any of those things because they wanted to get the property they got it at their in their mind for a good price and then as they started to, when they bought the property and they closed and they started to do renovations because it needed work, of course, uh, that's part of it being a steal, I guess. They realized that a house was completely infested with rats and uh, the people who sold had complete knowledge of this infestation. So it was quite an interesting situation to help those people deal with the problems of this afterwards. And... I don't know actually how it ended up because it obviously got litigious and, and we don't involve ourselves in that component of the law. But I know that that was a very interesting case, which I guess goes to the point of it's, it's better to be safe than sorry. And even though you really want a, a deal, sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to lose a deal, even if you really want it, because you need to protect the fact that there could be other problems, right? If it's too good to be true, then maybe it is too good to be true, right? Not doing a home inspection and not taking a bit more time to be thoroughly diligent on their acquisition may have kind of put them in that spot, right? 
but hindsight is always 2020, right? So I, I, that raises an interesting question because, I mean, I know that with, you, know, you can have your clauses in your agreement of purchase and sale and based on inspection and financing and all the rest of it. But if you decide to waive those, which as you say, a lot of people do for whatever reason, is there still a, a basic level of protection for people? Because like the rats, like, oh, yuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 and the, the, is there not something, I don't know, common law where both parties? Well, the, the, the law around, um, that kind of scenario really was a basis of, well, it used to be buyer beware. Uh, it was the old law that existed for a long time where basically if you're a buyer, you better do your due diligence because you get a lemon, you get a lemon, Right. Then the law changed at a certain point and there became this principle of what's called latent and patent. So there is an obligation on the sellers to make representations that are true and accurate and appropriate for the property. And if they are unknowing about a problem with the property, so if they actually didn't know about this issue with this particular property and sold the house as they did, and they didn't know, and that could be proven to be the case, then that would be considered buyer beware, right? On the flip side, though, if our clients could establish that there's no way taking the regular course of due diligence that our client could, as a buyer, find this problem, and that there's no way these people didn't know about it, then it would fall into what's called as a latent defect. And buy and buyers cannot be held accountable for a latent defect with a property, but sellers can because it's based on the premise that they knew about it and concealed the issue. And on regular due diligence of the buyer, the buyer couldn't find out that problem. So as long as it was, could be deemed as a latent defect, then under the you know, common law and the, and the cases, our buyers could be successful against that seller for, for damages. So I just don't know if that happened or not. That's it. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, Right Club Nation. Just wanted to stop the podcast really quickly to introduce you to this week's sponsor, Dylan Suter of Elevation Realty. Dylan and his team have been a longtime supporter of the Right Club and now the Right Club podcast. Dylan and his team have been personally helping me find a property in the Hamilton area. And I know for a fact he's helped many Right Club Nation members find their investment property. Dylan, take it away. Thank you so much, Alfonso. Proud supporter and sponsor of not just the Right Club and Right Club Podcast, also of Jag Properties and everything you guys all do in your end. So thank you so much for having me on here. Myself, I'm an investor and an agent. I have a team of five that work with Keller Williams, all investors, and we service the Hamilton, Halton, and Niagara region, both for residential and investment-based properties. Just want to leave the podcast with a quick tip for the month. Tip of the month will be winter months bring opportunity to negotiate better prices and extremely favorable terms. If you want the best negotiator in your corner for investment properties or residential real estate, give us a call at 905-592-4220. You can check us out at all the Right Club events. Email us at info at elevationrealty.ca. Check us out online at elevationrealty.ca. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. Back to you, Alfonso. All right. And like Dylan said, if you haven't met him or anybody on his team, definitely check out the next Right Club event. They're there every event. Thank you so much for your support, Dylan. Now, back to the podcast. And now back to the show. Super interesting. You know, it makes me, because I actually had a situation where the, and I'll never do, buy a property ever again without seeing in the attic, but there was no attic access. And it turns out that they had sealed it 
And what ended up happening is there was all this mold and there was this vermiculite asbestos and it cost us like 20 grand to remove it. I didn't go after them, but you know, clearly if you're like closing the hatch and you're drywalling, you're hiding something. <laughs> so never buy a house that you can't see into the attic moving forward. We'll never yeah, do that that's again. a good point. Yeah. Attics are full of fun stuff sometimes. So uh, it's a good thing it was just mold and not, I think rats is worse, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, 20 grand fixed it. Yeah. It is what it is, but so, okay. So let's just say you buy a property and one of the things I, I really like to do is send an email to my team. Yep. So my lawyer, my mortgage broker, basically, my, you know, my insurance person, my realtor, and then introduce everybody and say, here's the agreement. Here's the realtor listing work behind the scenes. Let me know if you need me. And then they kind of do everything and it's, it's super great. But on your end, when you get an agreement, can you walk us through some of those steps and what you do on your end to ensure that the close yeah, is certainly. successful? Um, so our process uh, typically starts with that email or if it's really old school, a fax or a drop off of an agreement of purchase and sale. Um, then what we do is we go through the process of putting it in order with our other files that are pending to close. So we put everything chronological to date of closing and rec date. And when the file comes up to its opening period, which we typically try to open them all as soon as possible, but when it comes up to its opening date, a file is open through our opening department and they send a welcome letter with an email, which has basically a couple of things attached to it, outlining the exact steps of the process. So they're at file opening. The next step is to fill in the retainer agreement, which says, this is what we agree to do as your lawyer for you. This is how much you're going to pay us to do that. Um, then there will be an information sheet, which we collect all the information about the, the buyer. And we use a purchase as an example. So it'll say like, what's your date of birth? Are you first time home buyers? Are you a spouse? Are you a Canadian resident and citizen? Are you going to be using financing? Are you going to use home insurance? So it's a fairly exhaustive uh, information sheet so that we have all the information to all the questions that we're going to have for, for almost every purchase all in one spot, all done in, at once for the client. So it's a retainer, that information sheet, an ID form is collected at that time as well. And we collect a sample of their actual photo ID and a, a secondary non-photo ID. So we get all those items typically within the first 48 business hours from the uh, file being opened. Then from there, depending on how tight the timeline of the closing is, we'll do a title search. So we'll review title, my clerk and conveyancer pull it from the land registry office. They present it to me. I review it, make sure there's no issues with title. Uh, we make rec requisitions to title, which is basically a, a fancy way of saying we ask the seller's lawyer to do things, you know, pay off a mortgage and discharge it from title, um, delete expired title instruments, give us confirmation of details about maybe a registered easement, those kinds of things. So we do a title requisition letter. We usually follow up with that requisition letter within, uh, again, 36 to 48 hours of us sending the request to the seller's lawyer. Then we'll prepare and work on the, the signing documents for an appointment with the client, and we'll schedule the client for an appointment as well. So typically, at that point, once everything's prepared with the title documents, the mortgage documents, the insurance documents, we sign them with the client at their meeting. And then once the uh, meeting is complete, 
Then we do registration typically one or two business days after that appointment on the closing date and the clients come to our office and pick up the key. So what are some of the things on title that could actually either delay a, a closing or actually stop the deal in its tracks? I'm sure you must see things that happen. So can you tell us some of that, those things? Well, I mean, uh, it, it really probably depends a lot on how they respond to our requisition letter. I mean, it could be as simple as we ask for a mortgage to be paid out and discharged. If they say, no, they're not going to do that, well, that's going to stop a deal right there in its tracks, unless there's some good reason why that mortgage is going to stay on title. But like more fundamental issues that are going to cause problems would be there's no ac proper access to the property. We had a deal, going back to your question about kind of nightmare issues, we had a client who bought a property and it was a really old piece of property. And even though it appeared as though he had proper access from the municipal road to his driveway, unfortunately, the municipal road stopped about 100 feet short of his actual property, even though the title to the property didn't show that because it was very old so there was not a brand new survey to property and so because the the survey wasn't accurate and up to date it turned out that another landowner actually owned the land in front of his property so his property became landlocked so if the title search actually disclosed that appropriately uh, that would certainly have been something that could have stopped that deal in its tracks or required that deal to be uh, modified or negotiated or amended you have some other issues of just there being uh, loans on title that aren't disclosed. I mean, there could be a fraud issue on title. Thankfully, in 15 years, I've never come across a fraud on title, but that would definitely be something that would cause a deal to get stalled up or maybe even stopped in its tracks. The, probably another one, which again, thankfully, I've never run into is the person who's selling the property actually doesn't own the property. Uh, that's obviously a big problem as well. And hopefully there's a good explanation to uh, why the person's selling something they don't own. Um, hopefully it's not like a fraud happening, but those are going to be cases where it causes at least people to stop in their tracks and say, okay, what's happening here? And, and we need to talk to our client and we need to talk to the other side and get some answers to these problems. I would, I would think that if, like, for example, if, if an estate has gone to probate or something, then, and you know, that, in that case, yeah. the title is, like, it's the estate, right? So that, that just came to mind that that would be one reason why someone not be on title. Yeah, and estate can be one as well. Um, a lot of the times, unless it's a sudden estate where the person was alive and then unfortunately they passed away very, very suddenly and unexpectedly, those scenarios that can certainly stall up a deal, but I don't think that it makes the deal necessarily go dead unless the buyer doesn't want to wait for the deal to go through probate, uh, which would then be the mechanism that would allow for the sale to go through. So, I mean, we, we've had that happen a couple different times where unfortunately somebody suddenly passed away. And it's, in some cases, to your point, the deal didn't proceed. Everybody walked away from the deal. But in other cases, the deal did proceed. We just had to extend the closing to allow for the probate application to go through the courts, and, and in which case then it closed thereafter. Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a question, just a little bit of a different direction. Let's just say you buy something and you cannot close on it. You've removed your conditions, you know, at that point in time as a, an investor, let's just say, and for whatever reason you can't close, what's 
from a legal perspective do you need to know and be aware of? Um, so, sorry, if I understand your question correctly, um, you're saying you've, you've gone in on a deal, but something happened and now, now for some reason you can't close. Correct. Uh, and then, so what happens to you as the party in default? Yeah. Correct. So I, I guess it probably really depends on the magnitude of the problem, right? At the end of the day, for a defaulting party and the other party has done what is called tender, tendering is a legal term for a process that shows you're ready, willing, and able to close on a deal. Uh, if, if you are the defaulting party, the first step for the non-defaulting party is to, is to try to mitigate their losses. So... If, if it was me and you doing a deal and I was the buyer and my, my financing fell through and I couldn't get a loan to buy from you, you tender on me, then you put the property back on market. If you sold it for say $50,000 less than I was supposed to buy it uh, from you for, well, you already have costs and damages right there at 50,000. You probably have some extra fees incurred with your mortgage. If you had a mortgage on the property to be paid out, you might have additional legal fees. You may have costs related to uh, your own purchase transaction if you were going to buy. So all those things would get all added together. And the person, me being the defaulting party, would have to pay for those costs, uh, potentially in court if ordered to do so, right? So that's the ultimate concern for somebody who is in a position of default is how large and how big could the costs and damages get because I wasn't able to close. So yeah, absolutely. Does that happen often in your 15 years of experience? I don't know that we've actually had a deal ever not close. Thankfully, that being said, have we had some that needed some extra work? Have we had some that needed some extensions and that kind of thing? Uh, yes, absolutely. We've had had a handful or maybe a dozen of those over the 15 years. But most of the time, because we we have quite a bit of additional resources with people who are actually clients that are private lenders, we have plan B that we can typically help some of our clients with to say, okay, look, your financing is short or your financing fell through. We know enough people in the industry now that we can say, hey, we'll talk to this person right away. They'll give you, it's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be inexpensive for you, but they're going to save you this deal. And that's probably better than the alternative, which is you don't get a property uh, that you wanted in our example of a, a buyer being in default. And, and then you're on the hook for potentially a whole bunch of other costs of the seller. So typically we try to find other alternatives to make it work for somebody who might not be what they ideally wanted in the first place, but that option's gone at that point. So, yeah, absolutely. So some things to, to you know, definitely to be careful of is uh, that's why you might want to put conditions and have five days to really do your due diligence because otherwise <laughs> you can get sued on the back end if you can't close. But I will say money is easier to find than people think. It's just at what price, right? What price are you paying on that money? So anything else that we should know from a legal standpoint that an investor, whether they have one property or 20 properties should be aware of? I think the biggest thing which you guys have been really great to, to really preach through the right club is really get a great power team, you know, around you. Make sure you have really strong investors and advisors to help you out, whether it's a good mentor and a coach and, and you guys, good, good lawyer, good mortgage broker, especially if you're talking about real estate investment, make sure you have got like a fairly experienced mortgage broker who's, um, 
you know, seen quite a few of these and ha had a good gambit of all the different types of real estate investing, can, can do the different types of properties, not just single family residential, but, you know, multi duplex, quads, commercial, like make sure you've got a good, uh, good group of finance options there. Probably based on what we just talked about, try to make sure you always have somebody that can be your plan B, you know, really make sure that ideally this is plan A to close on this deal. But if I can't do it, I've got plan B because you never know what'll happen. Most, most of the time these deals are, are, you know, 90 to 99% uh, secure and, and go through the way you plan them to go. But it's that, you know, small percent that, that don't go the way you plan that you learn the most from, but you, you also get the great, the quickest gray hair on. So hopefully if you've got a good plan B, that'll help mitigate some of your, uh, your stress in this kind of investment field. But yeah, good power team, save you a lot of stress with, uh, with a good coach, good lawyer, good accountant, good finance option, have a good plan B. And, you know, as we talked about, sometimes, you know, slow down, take your time. If a deal is too good to be true, maybe, uh, maybe it is and make sure you're comfortable and you've done your due diligence. And if you're not sure, just, you know, ask somebody to make sure you are doing enough due diligence, right? Everybody can learn uh, every day of their life. So even if you've done a thousand of these, there's always room to learn something new. So I have a question because, and I know this comes up, especially with, with newer investors and maybe haven't, you know, done very many deals. And what are the best days not to close on? In other words, on the, on the days of the month, you're smiling because <laughs> I know you are because um, you know what can happen, right? <laughs> certain days of the month. So let, let's put it another way. What are the best ways to actually close? If you had to choose, you have a client coming in and you say, well, pick a day. You're going to tell them what day not to close on and what, you know, what's the best time to close on? Well, don't pick Friday, number <laughs> one. Friday closings are always a bit of a nightmare because unfortunately, if they don't close by 5 p.m. on, on Friday, then the registry office uh, taps you out at 5 p.m. every day. So now you have to wait until Monday because they don't open on Saturday and Sunday. So you can't register that deal until Monday. So that's one problem with a Friday closing. The other thing is just the sheer fact that you're in limbo for two days potentially uh, if you don't have a compromising party on the other side uh, if you're doing a purchase and a sale, right? So Friday, Friday just in general is not a great day to try to close on. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I think are your better days of the week. I, I say Monday's not great either because the problem is everybody's coming back from the weekend. And so people are a little bit slow on Monday. I think it's just better to avoid Monday for the same reasons as Friday. It's just coming off a weekend. It's a little bit slow. Sometimes the issue is people haven't got new things and you've got, you've had these two dead days where nobody's really communicating with each other. So Monday and Friday are just not great days. June 30th, Always stay away from June 30th whenever you can. It's just notoriously a bad day to close. Stay away from just before Christmas holidays because uh, most lawyers close from, well, in our case, we're closed from the 23rd to the 3rd. So not everybody is closed as long as that, but uh, lots of places are closed longer. Some are closed a little bit shorter, but closing over Christmas is uh, and, and the New Year's is fraught with problems because banks have short hours, land registry office, same thing. It's just not easy to, uh, to deal with deals in that time period. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I think your your best days. 
Avoid days before long weekends and holidays. Avoid Fridays, Mondays generally. And avoid, you know, between Christmas and New Year's is typically a good time to avoid as well. But that being said, you know, we'll close them whenever. You know, we're, we're here Monday to Friday, always working on it. So we'll, we'll get them done. Awesome. So I really wish we could keep you for a whole other hour because I had tons of questions. I also wanted to ask you about joint venture agreements and all that, but we'll have to get you back on another podcast at a future date. Um, so the next part of this podcast is called our lightning round. So Laurel and I are going to take turns. We're going to ask you a series of four questions. Everybody gets the same questions and then you're just going to give us the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? Okay. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, Right Club Nation, I just wanted to take a quick moment here. It is Sarah Larby, and I'm here with Laurel Simmons, and we have some really exciting news for you. And we heard you, we heard your emails, and we are going to be bringing you Right Club Nation online, coast-to-coast, accessible at any time of day, and you can be in your pajamas like I am right now, and you can access our great contents. And what is going to be that content, Laurel? Well, we have videos, recordings of live events that we've held. We have webinars. We have, we'll have our podcast information up there. We'll have uh, forums and chat groups and all kinds of things. You'll even be able to find services and products that you need in your neighborhood, local for you, because we know how important it is that you have your local team with you. We're going to be rolling things out very quickly. And as we start, you'll see more and more stuff come along. And we really want you to join and become part of our online community. Absolutely. This is the first, and in my opinion, it was going to be the best Canadian online community of real estate investors and like-minded individuals. So guys, come and grow with us. Join our online community, register, and come and say hi and check out the amazing things. Yeah, and all you have to do is go to therightclub.com and you'll find us there. It's easy to register, it's free, and hop on. We can't wait to see you there. Guys, come and grow with us. And now, back to the show. All right, question number one. What is the best advice that you've ever received from another investor or at a networking event? Great. Get a good power team. Okay, awesome. Okay, question number two. So what's your favorite resource for real estate investing? The right club. (laughs) Okay. That's a great answer. Number three, what is the one attribute that has made you most successful? Uh, Just relating to people, I think. Being a people person, trying to understand people and where they're coming from. And our last question, what do you typically do on a Sunday morning? Take my uh, son to hockey practice and my daughter to dance. Awesome. I see lots of trophies and things in the back. Is that sports related or is that your legal awards? Uh, No, those are uh, sports memorabilia, that kind of thing. I'm I'm standing in front of the bar, so you can't see that. So that's good. Uh, (laughs) Very cool. So Ryan, how can people reach out and learn more about you if they wanted to? Uh, Well, we're at uh, the Right Club monthly, so they can come see us there. We always have a booth, so we're happy to talk to people there. They can see us on our website, which is carsonlaw.ca. They can follow us on uh, Facebook and Instagram, and they can call me anytime. Call or email me anytime. Obviously, my telephone number and email will be on our website. And uh, as I said, I... I don't sleep 24 seven. You can, you can ding me and, um, and I'll get back to you pretty quickly. 
Awesome. Any final last words of advice? Uh, no, like I said, I think just uh, make sure you get a good group of people to support you, whether you're on your first deal or your 1000th, you can always learn and you guys are uh, doing some great things and people are really fortunate to be able to, to, you know, have you guys as a resource. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for being on the Right Club podcast. It was a pleasure having you and we'll see you in January at our Right Club event. Thanks a lot, guys. Actually, Thank you. Thanks, Laurel. Bye. Thank you very Thank much. You. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Good night. So, Sarah, what did you think? What did uh, Ryan say to you that made you think twice? Definitely, you know, some of the horror stories. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's ha- he has so many more that he can talk about, but I found those quite interesting, like that rat story. Oh, I feel so bad for, for those people. It's going to cost a lot of money to, to deal with that. But, you know, like you do have options it's to, for uh, going back to the sellers. And uh, I, I was quite intrigued with, uh, with those stories. What about you, Laurel? Uh, yeah, I actually gasped. I had my microphone turned off at that point. But, but when he said rats, I literally like jumped in my chair. It was like, oh, I can't think of anything. <laughs> well, I can't think of a few things worse, but that would be just a really horrible thing. And especially if you're so excited about a deal. But I think what really struck home with me, and, and, and you will hear this from any member of your power team, right? Is do your due diligence. Make sure that you protect yourself. Don't just jump into a deal because it sounds good. Because we all know that um, emotion can really, really get you into trouble. So if you if you follow the, the, the rules of logic, keep emotion out of it and treat it as a business deal, then you're going to do much better. And I think that, you know, he just, in what he said, it just was, it made it very clear that it's a business, right? Go through the process, follow the rules, and your chances of running into problems are far less than if you try to short circuit the process. Yeah, but I will say though that the more deals you do, the more problems you'll have, but you'll be more equipped along the way to to deal with them. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to make it seem like there are no problems, like no matter what. Like I have a deal right now, and there's like, it was an estate sale. And the person, so when they looked at the title, there's somebody that died in 1983 that's somehow still on it. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I mean, like, it's, it's still a problem. Like, I'm sure we'll figure it out and we'll fix it. But, you know, you'll always run across some things. It's never always smooth sailing. And if it, it was, then everybody would be doing this. Well, and that's true. There are always going to be problems. But generally, they tend to be ones that, as you say, like, th- that, that's strange that someone's still on title. Obviously, somebody didn't do their job whenever, years ago. However, um, um, a good lawyer and a good team around you will help fix those problems. And the other thing is, as you get more experience in real estate investing, is you you start to get almost a, like a, a sixth sense is, oh, I think this might be a little problem at some point. And yet, as you go into it, you know that, well, yeah, it's going to be a problem, but we'll deal with it because we know we've got the people who can deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. And he mentioned having a good power team, and that is really key. And, uh, and I truly believe that is why I'm here today and successful today is because I made sure to have the right people on my team to help me get here. Yeah. Same with us. Like you just can't, you can't do it alone. There's no way you need the best people around you to support you. Absolutely. So right club nation, we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for hopping on. See you next week. And don't forget, come and grow with us. Come grow with us. Good night, Sarah. Good night. 
Thanks for listening to the Right Club podcast and joining our community of real estate investors online at therightclub.com, where the focus is about helping you grow. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks from your hosts, Sarah Larby and Alfonso Salemi.